Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast, where we connect with educators from across the globe who are creating a better future for learning and educating now by implementing bold ideas and fostering a sense of curiosity, creativity, and possibility. Well, be careful not to uh, confuse wisdom with experience. Just because I've been in the education space since Moses uh, doesn't mean that uh, <laughs> doesn't mean that I'm necessarily wise. Welcome to this week's episode of Amplifying Optimism in Education, where Josh and I interview Alex Inman, founder and president of Educational Collaborators, and he speaks about his time this past year working over the pandemic to support schools as they ramp up their distance and online learning programs and how that might impact the future of learning both in school online and remotely in the future but yeah i did um it this is um obviously a ridiculously unique time in in education uh particularly for ed tech people but um but in some ways it's also um an old and timeless uh, challenge. Um, the we are we are COVID and and the and the move to remote learning <clears throat> has kind of created a necessary catalyst or a necessary condition or a catalyst for uh, high quality remote and digital learning. But though the remote piece is somewhat somewhat new in terms of a necessity because usually remote was a choice. Um, Though the remote piece is new, the skills and beliefs about teaching and learning are as old as one-to-one programs. So, you know, as you as you mentioned, I started uh, one of the earliest one-to-one programs. I started a one-to-one program uh, back in 1999 in Wisconsin. Um, we were the first in the state, and there were really only a maybe a handful or two of one-to-one programs in the country back then, and. And a lot of us got to know one another. And to be honest, I'm, though, those people who were leading some of the earliest one-to-one programs, they are the founders of Educational Collaborators, our consulting group, because ultimately what we realized is good teaching and learning married with technology changes faster than a consultant can sort of keep up with it. And, and to get the support and help we needed, we felt like the people who were the best consultants were the people who were in school. Problem was, they, you know, they were busy. They were in school <laughs> during the day. So what we did is we basically combined like multiple collaborators into a team and job sliced so that, um, you know, maybe six people could serve the job of one full-time consultant. And we all maintained our jobs in schools. And, and uh, you know, the upside was you got basically six brains for the cost of one and, and, and all that worked out. And we could consult while we were in school and learning. So, so it kind of worked for both sides, but that's, that, that's kind of how we started, but but that need was generated from the fact that good teaching and learning with tech, good teaching and learning today requires technology because it provides so many different kinds of opportunities, and and we live in such a, a, a digital flat world, and and so, but the way you teach with technology is a much more student empowering model than a traditional classroom lecture model. Always has been. 
because the reality is I don't care how smart and entertaining you are as a teacher, you don't have more information and more access to instructional design than the internet. There's no teacher in the planet who has, single teacher who has the ability to deliver in a lecture more instructional design or content than the internet, period. And so you do better by your students to empower them with instructional design and a tool to manage and use that information, which also happens to be the best way to do remote learning uh, in a world where you are being forced to do remote learning. So that's why I say, and in some ways, this is a, a, a very new and very unique challenge, and it is so insofar as remote learning is being forced upon teachers and students. But the tools and skills necessary to succeed are really as old as one-to-one -one programs. Um, two months. Um, this is a... Um, let me, let, let, let me be sensitive at the at the same point of being challenging. So make no mistake about it. This is probably the biggest challenge, the hardest obstacle I have seen schools and technology leaders, education technology leaders have to deal with ever in my in my entire 20 plus year education career. I've just I've never seen anything this hard uh, and universally this hard. Um, so don't get me wrong, this is a challenge. <clears throat> it is also an opportunity. And, and, and I kind of feel like that's a little trite because challenges are always opportunities and it's really easy for somebody who's not in the school today, and though I spent 20 years as a school administrator, I'm not a school administrator right now. And I think it's really easy for people like me to say, this challenge is an opportunity for you to succeed. And if you don't seize this opportunity, what a weak leader you are. Reality is there's some, there's some truth to that, but, but everybody who says that, and I'm saying that right now, needs to take that with a huge grain of salt and, uh, and, a, and a bucket full of uh, humility because um, I'm not dealing with this challenge right now. I am supporting schools specifically and directly on this challenge, so I see it and I understand it. But it is, um, but it, it's just, I'm, I'm probably going a little too far just to say I get it, and this is a really big deal. Um, that being said, one of the hardest challenges associated with getting teachers always for 20 plus years, as long as one-to-one -one has been around, which is 96 in the U.S. So student computing program has been around since 1996 in the U.S. And since then, the hardest challenge that schools have had to deal with is not actually the skills, the technology skills. It's shifting the attitudes and beliefs about moving to a more student-empowered environment and doing the change management necessary to get teachers from their status quo mindset about teaching and learning, which is oftentimes more teacher-centric, to a move that is more student-centric. Now, that's also not their fault. There's no fault to it. They were trained to be teacher-centric teachers because 
the teachers were the vessel to find, organize, and deliver content. And we were taught that way in college. That's what methods classes taught you. You need to identify the goal, find the content, curate that, organize it, structure it, and deliver it towards that goal. That's what your job was to do. <clears throat> so it did not assume the resources that exist today. <clears throat> and so being told that the most important thing that you need to do as a teacher is now not very important is a tough pill to swallow and doesn't come overnight, right? So, so schools need to make a shift fast and they don't have time to do high quality change management in order to get them there. I'm gonna push back on one thing that you just said, Joshua. So when you said, good teaching is good teaching and we know it when we see it. Maybe. Um, so good teaching is good teaching. Um, it is more defined than I know it when I see it. And it is also easily misidentified with the I know it when I see it criteria. One can be individually moved and motivated by a speaker and say, I see it, so I know it. But how they are individually moved and engaged may work unevenly across your populations, right? So it's too easy with the I know it when I see it uh, criteria to say that's good teaching and learning right? Because um, it's too individualized. The, um, the other thing is that <clears throat> we know that engagement does mean good teaching and learning or, or can be a criteria corollary to good teaching and learning. And that is something that can be measured and can be measured across your audience. But there are also organizational structures to your content and goals and activities in terms of project-based learning and rubric design and peer review <clears throat> that are also good teaching and learning that we know even though you may not be seeing that in your current classrooms. So just to kind of take a step back and recapsulate all the crap that I just said is good teaching and learning can be identified and structured and designed and needs to be independent of whether or not you have seen it in your school. And that that kind of design requires teachers to have attitudes about teaching and learning and uh, attitudes and beliefs about teaching and learning, as well as skill sets that they may not have. They need to be identified, they need to be addressed, and that takes time. The challenge is when we typically help schools deal with that change, that was a minimum six month typical three-year, maximum five-year kind of transition. We don't have that now. We have schools that said, we're gonna be face-to-face. -face. Oh, I'm sorry, tomorrow we're gonna to be online. You know, what are some of those attitudes, beliefs, and skill sets uh, around uh, that, that would lead to a larger culture shift in a school that, you know, kind of need to happen out of necessity now? That's, that's probably been our biggest chain or challenge right now is um, teachers, schools are saying we're moving online now. Um, we only have X number of professional days with our teachers because of contracts or because we weren't ready or 
because of a whole host of reasons associated with the challenges that we are dealing with right now. And, and so how do we, what, what can I give my teachers today to help them with the online learning that's happening literally tomorrow? <laughs> and, uh, and so the, um, <clears throat> here's how we're uh, dealing with that. All right, first, the 30-second the sort of summary of that creating a culture for change process and methodology, which is sort of like, here's best case scenario. I want, I want to, again, with the purpose, with an eye towards instructional design, let me set the schema and then let's adjust this. So <clears throat> good change management or a process that we use, which is kind of an amalgamation of a variety of change management theories, is to start with the end in mind. What does the goal look like? If you're walking down the hall and looking in the classroom and, and seeing uh, kids engage and teachers work with students and you say, yeah, that that's what we were looking for. My question to you is, now can you identify that in the same level of detail that your ninth grade English teacher asks you to do? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is it, where are people's eyes? What do you see? Like, like what's going on, right? Um, is it loud? Is it quiet? Like describe for me what that end result looks like. Then what are the sort of, um, how would you define that? So start looking at what are your goal statements now <clears throat> in terms of what you want your program to have. Your goal statements are going to have then words that are really weighted. Like, for example, we want students to really be much better collaborators. Great. What does that mean, right? Define collaboration in a way that's going to be meaningful for you so that you can start to build some criteria around that. Okay. Once you've done that process, now get the involvement from your community. <clears throat> Make sure that you're talking to all those groups that you just mentioned, Carson, and then subgroups within that, right? So like if your teachers, You've got your rah-rah super technology teachers. You've got your grumpy curmudgeons who hate everything about education and, and administration. You've got your mid-career teachers who are good, but just freaking busy with life right now. Um, you've got your laminated lesson teachers, right? I've been teaching it this way since 1968 and it's worked then, so I don't need to change it, right? Like make sure that you've got your subgroups within each of those groups. Um, with your parents, your alumni parents, current parents, parents who have little ones and all that kind of stuff. Make sure you're thinking about your subgroups. Listen to them. Ask them, what are your aspirations? What are your greatest fears? Work through the definitions of those weighted words so that you can get that. Take that information, build an assessment, now gather some quantitative information. Use surveys based off of your local language to gather the, the information and then use that data to, to then build your plans. Okay, there you go. That's the, that's the sort of full process. You don't have time for all that, so what do you gotta do? Well, we know you need skills in online learning like your learning management system, and we know you need skills in instructional design. Like those two sets of skills are crucial for you. So you also need to have a belief that students can do things on their own and should do stuff on their own. That's a, an attitudinal prerequisite to good instructional design, right? And so how those three things need to be addressed everywhere. So how do you do that fast? What we've been doing is we've been working with schools to say, we're gonna build a custom course, little mini course, PD course inside your LMS using the core sets of tools that you want your students to use. Seesaw, Google Classroom, Teams, uh, uh, you know, maybe a content library, you know, like what, what are the core tools 
G Suite, Microsoft 365, those kinds of things. What are the core tools that you want to stick to? And we're going to build a class on best practices for virtual learning inside your LMS featuring all of the major features of your LMS and the major core set of tools that you have. So we're going to teach you instructional design by modeling instructional design using the tools that you have focused on, you've chosen to focus on for your, for your teachers. And we're going to teach you those best practices, which is the sort of attitudinal pieces as well as the skill sets within that content. And so then when you're done, you have a recorded course inside a uh, content course inside your LMS, all modeling those best practices. And, and we can do that in like literally 10 hours. Uh, and so we do that with you guys in 10 hours, and then you've got a place to get started. That then sort of, once you know what the best practices is, what best practices are, that's that end result, right? The one I'm looking for when I watch the classroom. Now I can start to, as an administrator, compare and contrast, how are my teachers doing relative to what I wanna see? And where are the gaps, knowing the best practices? And now what do I need additional uh, to, to get that going? And we'll provide like coaching and uh, mentoring and uh, virtual support and that kind of stuff to help people with that. I'm sure that there's this feeling of like, what is the best, so to speak? What do we need to do to get to the best of this? But it sounds like what you're saying is wherever you are, we can work with you and help you to get where you need to get to with your great teaching. That perspective of meeting schools where they are, uh, schools and districts where they are, uh, and, and making adjustments towards their goals, that's kind of baked into our DNA uh, at, at Educational Collaborators. But it's, that's not how everyone thinks. So I'm glad that you kind of pulled that out because I think there are a lot of vendors who say, um, I, I'll give an example of a partner, and this is not being critical of them. Like Google and Microsoft, they're in, between the two of them, they're in almost every school and district in the country, right? They don't have the luxury to say, well, who are you as a school and where are your teachers right now? Let me show you how you can use Google or Microsoft. They just say, hey, look, here's best practices with Google and Microsoft. And, um, and that's awesome and valuable. But schools need more than that if it's going to be sticky uh, and if teachers are going to really have what they need to invest in what they need to do to design good teaching and learning for their students within their content area, right? And so, <clears throat> and the other part is too, schools have different cultures and different expectations. You need to design your best practices around those culture, that culture and those expectations. So, um, so thanks for, thanks for sort of identifying that. Cause I think that that's probably something that I took for granted in my last, in my last comment, um, and last response. Um, but, but yeah, the, um, yeah, schools need to sort of be mindful of, who they are in their community and their culture and their expectations and make sure that they're designing around that. But all too often their culture and their expectations are so close to them. They don't take the time to step back and look at those and identify those and say, this is who we are. And because this is who we are, this is how we should design, right? That requires a deliberate conversation and, and a deliberate kind of reflection that's also more important now than it ever has been because with remote learning, uh, parents have to be more involved than they've ever been. When you're at a school, your students, your teachers, your administrators, they live that culture and so they know it, even if you've not defined it. 
Your parents don't know that. Your parents don't really understand that. Even if you're at a private school with a deeply involved admissions process, forget about it. They don't get it. And so you have to take the time to sort of say, this is who we are and these are our expectations. And then, uh, and then design around that so that everybody's kind of on the same, same page. But yeah, <clears throat> how you would apply Google Classroom or Microsoft Teams or Canvas or Seesaw is different. And though the research around instructional design and best practices is pretty um, generally applicable, again, how you apply student learning, how you apply student autonomy, how you apply agency, it's gonna be colored by your culture. So you need to take a minute to at least think about that. We spend, when we do our full change management, we don't spend a minute on it. We spend like a month on it. But you got to spend at least an hour in dedicated, directed reflection on that. Uh, there are a lot of schools and administrators that are either afraid to tackle the conversation about what good teaching and learning should look like or does look like. And and or there are schools that are um, politically unwilling. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big topic and it's scary and it's messy and they don't feel like they have time to get into it. I get it, I understand that. But there are some that are just flat out politically unwilling to have a conversation with teachers whose teaching and learning style was probably not very good in real time, but is absolutely bad when you move into remote. And the example is this. Schools are buying owls and swivels and cameras like crazy to put into the classroom so a teacher can teach the exact same way they always have. And they're asking students to sit at home and watch a lecture, six, seven hours of lectures. I know elementary schools that are doing this. I know elementary schools that are asking second and third graders to sit next to peers in a room they're actually dividing the classes, taking schools and saying, for social distancing reasons, I need two physical spaces for these kids. So we're gonna teach as a lecture to these kids and in another room are gonna be the other half of the kids watching that lecture. Oh my God, <laughs> that is going to be horrible for the teachers and the kids. I give it about three days before teachers break down and say, teachers and students break down and say, we, we cannot do this. We cannot mm -hmm. do this. And actually, woe be the schools that are all remote and doing that because they don't even get a chance to see how badly this is hurting the kids. At least those that are splitting them across two rooms will have the opportunity to see how horrible this is for both students and teachers. But this is going to suck. And it's going to suck mm -hmm. hard. Sorry for the language. It's just going <laughs> to be bad. And... And so, um, and to some degree, if, if, if you're afraid of the conversation because it's complicated and you know that and, and you don't feel like you have the time, I understand you don't have a choice. You got to get into this. You got to get into this. But if you're not dealing with this because you are politically afraid of your teachers, I'm sorry. That's poor leadership. You got to get into this. You have no choice. You got to get into this. And you got to start answering what good teaching and learning looks like. And you got to start designing for it because your parents gave you a pass in the spring because mm -hmm. you had no choice. You had to jump into this.
But if you're not dealing with this after you saw how bad it was then, and you're actually designing something worse for this semester, your parents are going to be pissed. And um, you got to deal with it. You just have to. What are the things to look for? What are the what are the, the ways to start that conversation and, and micro bits while the ship's in the air? When I was talking about that sort of uh, starting point of walking in the hallway and looking into a classroom and saying, wow, yeah, that's, that's what we wanted. Um, the starting point is you're an administrator and you just got an email from a parent. And, and when you read that email, it made you feel like, wow, we really did it. We really met this moment and met our students' needs. What did that parent say? What were they describing? What kind of environment did their students go through that yielded their comments, which led to your satisfaction about meeting the moment and meeting kids where they are? Um, and, and that's gonna be a little bit different culture for culture, right? And, and that's, that's the starting point that we ask. Sometimes, if the reason you haven't dealt with that is because it's politically too difficult in your community, it will be actually very difficult to manage that conversation in-house. Because, uh, you know, I've been at politically challenging schools. I, I understand that this is a, um, this is not a small task for those places and that that didn't happen overnight. And so it's not going to be solved overnight. So I know I was a little critical of those kinds of schools and those kinds of leaders or leaders at those kinds of schools. Um, and, and you can take that criticism because I, I, I meant it. You do have to deal with it. I'm sorry. You have to deal with it. But I also am empathetic to the fact that it's not going to be easy for you to deal with internally. And the circumstances of the now effectively guarantee that you can't deal with it without some outside help. So get the outside help that you need to deal with the questions that you have to ask in order to deal with the challenges that you have to deal with. But you know what? You still have to deal with them. So if going outside is what's required at this time, then go outside, get the help that you need, but you gotta, you still got to deal with it. We still have issues of equity to talk about and to think about in terms of um, the digital divide in terms of access to the technology in terms of access to internet that can allow students to even access this technology and so I'm curious what you've been experiencing because obviously you were building these platforms for schools for a while and for school districts that have been using them but now that everybody has a need for it and not everybody has access to it how are you what's what's that, that process been like for you? I'm actually pleased to see I wish it didn't require a pandemic to get there, but there's a global back order on devices right now uh, because so many schools feel the need to, to provide those devices and, and get students those devices. And, and, you know, what that says is that we probably weren't doing a good enough job of that in the past, which we knew COVID exposed this, but this global back, if we, if we recognized this was a challenge and we didn't have a global back order right now, well, that'd be a bigger issue. So there's our silver lining is that a lot of districts and schools are, have recognized this and are dealing with this. Uh, and as a result of this, we, we have a, a back order that is precluding them to be able to fulfill on this challenge. Okay. Um, that being said, in the last 25 years, we've actually seen this once before. Uh, 
the last time we had a significant back order for devices in the US. Uh, and this was a US issue, so the back order wasn't nearly as big. It wasn't a global issue. But it was um, annual yearly progress associated with No Child Left Behind. When they came out with the Park and Smarter Balance assessments, and those were online assessments, and states as a whole were requiring this, schools realized we don't even have enough devices to even manage the testing for this. And so what happened was, and this is a cautionary tale for current, for current times, is they bought a lot of devices. Those devices sat unused or radically underutilized except for testing day, right? They got busted out. So my hope is that we don't have people who are just accessing things in the same way like, you know, okay, I've got this. Now I can get the same worksheet that I got, but digitally, um, uh -huh. you know, and, <laughs> and so we use it sort of as a replacement technology or as an augmented for a very specific need. Um, that would be a, a sad moment that I think is probably a very, very high risk, but at least the devices are getting bought um, to meet the needs now. Okay, but that's, that's a bit of a tangent to the question that you asked. Um, going back to the question that you asked about equity and how do you design for that? Well, the, the starting point is the exact same that we've already talked about. It's what is it that good teaching and learning should look like, and then how do you design for that? Now, when you get into the how do you design for that, you're going to find that you have gaps. And those gaps are, are likely because of the digital equity issues that you have, uh, or just equity issues. Let's just start with there. Like, there are equity issues um, associated with that in order to create that. So, for example, particularly with the little, little ones, families that have higher socioeconomic status are likely to have more parental support for kids during the day, right? That's a very necessary component for the kind of instructional uh, outcomes that you are likely seeking for your students. So equity that has nothing to do with digital um, is undermining your ability to deliver the digital uh, outcomes or the, the learning outcomes with the, with the digital tools that you're seeking. So how do you design around that? So those help you identify your priorities, right? And so Schools that I think are doing it best are schools that are saying, we have identified what good teaching and learning looks like. We feel like we can provide that with the devices that we have or the devices that we can acquire for our middle and high school students. And so we're gonna do that. And we're gonna be virtual almost all year. And we're gonna use those physical middle and high school plants to meet the needs of uh, families whose economic or social conditions do not allow them the support that they need. Uh, uh, little ones who can't be as independent as we want them to be. Special needs students uh, whose IEP demand that they have greater access to a broader number of support personnel, right? Like start to identify what's, what are the needs, what are the prerequisites in order to deliver that goal and and who can we deliver that for at home and who can we not and instead of starting from the starting point of hey you know what our kids need to be in the classroom four days a week because our teachers can only deliver the content verbally if they're there four days a week Ooh, that's the wrong design right what is it that we want the students to have how do you design for that, given the challenges that we have? And can we, under, can we 
reduce the level of teacher lecture time and physical space in the middle and upper schools as much as possible. And then can we use that resource now for the communities that cannot get the individualized, um, uh, empowered and autonomous kind of learning that um, ultimately, and student-centered learning, that it was ultimately better teaching and learning than receiving a lecture anyway. Part of your DNA personally is having worked with you many times and just knowing how your company works, it's, it's, it's design thinking is, the, is a big part of the DNA. It's where do you want to end up? What's the why? Culture, curricular support, and capital. Capital being sort of the, the logistics, right? And the reality is um, most schools just jumped right into the logistics. I get it. Like, I get it. The logistical challenges of this COVID remote learning crisis are insane. And so, you know, and, and there's low-hanging fruit there. Right? You got CDC recommendations. They're not very low-hanging fruit because all this fruit is changing all the time. But, um, but it's tangible, right? You've got this huge insurmountable problem that is so hard to get your arms around. And, and, and at least something, these, the, these logistics are tangible. And so folks want to start with that. I'd argue that's the last place to start. That that is the end, not the beginning. You start with who are you, who do you want to be, and what does good teaching and learning look like in that environment? Once you identify that, what are the expectations that you need to have of your school, of your faculty, of your teachers, or excuse me, of your faculty, of your parents, and your students? What, what, what do you need to have? Those are the expectations that you need to set. That's the culture piece. Once you've established the culture and the expectations, now what do you need to have in terms of systems and skill sets in order to deliver and beliefs to deliver on that. Okay, now let's look at the classroom environment. What does the classroom environment need to look like in order to deliver on that who we are with the expectations that you have set? Okay, now you know what now, what are the systems? What are the space? What is the health procedures? Like all of those things now and only now need to be solved. And so the toughest part about helping schools was to say, okay, what have you done so far? That's awesome. Let's put that over here and not talk about it for a long time. Like, let's just set it aside. We'll get to that in a week. In a week, we need to do this stuff now. Don't worry. The, the CDC guidelines are going to change three times in a week anyways. So just let it sit there for a second. And let's come back and talk about who you are and what your expectations are. And then we're going to get back to um, that's been the hardest part about helping people plan. Um, but the reality is you're right, Carson. Um, once you know your end result and who you are, you can set expectations and then the rest of the stuff actually starts to fall into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think you said something, uh, several things in there that were really helpful, but one, one little nugget I heard was this, what is the best learning for your environment? Meaning, you know, for those, those school administrators, those teachers who are, you know, dealing with this need to uh, make change happen, even though there's resistance, it's that reminder that the learning environment, it's changed. This, I mean, like I said at the beginning, this is a big deal, right? This is not easy. There's nothing easy about this. Um, it, it is hard, but, um, 
but you can't just deal with the uh, individualized challenges. You gotta, like any sort of problem, you gotta step back under, think about the problem itself, the nature of the problem and the context of the problem before you start solving it. Um, mm -hmm. It's, um, it's, it's definitely a, this is definitely a really, really hard time. I, <laughs> I, you know, Carson, cause you, you know me and you know how much I like jumping in and solving problems, right? Like I just, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, I, I get some sort of funky high off of a, of a catastrophe. And, um, and so a piece of me is, is, extraordinarily happy that I'm not a school CIO right now because this mm -hmm. is such a difficult time. But uh, another pretty significant piece of me is fairly jealous of my mm -hmm. colleagues because, wow, what a mm -hmm. puzzle. What mm -hmm. a challenge this is. Mm -hmm. and, and it's so important. And it is such an opportunity to start to think about things differently because you have no choice but to think about things differently. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I'm, I am sad that I don't get the opportunity to be at the table leading this for an individual school and students that I know and mm -hmm. love right now. Mm -hmm. I get to help lots of schools, but like, I think like most educators, you know, the, the, it's the heart, right? It, it's, it, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's, it's the connecting with kids and teachers mm -hmm. and knowing that the work that you're doing is making their lives better. That is, mm -hmm. is the reason that you go to school every day. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I miss the interpersonal side mm -hmm. and satisfaction of, of being in a school with this challenge right now. But I promise you, my wife is a heck of a lot happier that I am not in school right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, what skills, what attitudes, what beliefs changed that then reintegrated when we, when, when, you know, we don't have to consider this yeah. threat anymore? Yeah. The, instructional design is far and away like the biggest takeaway that, that schools are going to get from COVID, right? Like if... <sighs> This thing is absolutely forcing every teacher, whether we are successful with our thinking about this or not, every teacher is thinking about how do I need to redesign my course to meet the needs of students with this challenge. That very action is going to make them a better teacher in the future, period. Um, a lot of us will forget this ever happened and go back to the way we, we always taught and shame on us for not taking advantage of this learning opportunity. But the, but the reality is there are a lot of teachers who, when you're, when presented with professional learning experiences to rethink the instructional design, if they don't have to, they won't, but they have to now, they have to at least think about it. And the very action of thinking about it because you have to is going to go so much mm -hmm. further than any workshop, any conference, mm -hmm. any college class that any teacher has ever taken. And that is <laughs> awesome. Mm, I love that. <laughs> and what do you say, Alex, to that read? What do you say to those teachers who maybe are afraid? of diving into this world of instructional design? Um, good, 
good. Congratulations. <laughs> awesome. Good on you. Because if you're not afraid about this, then you're not taking it seriously. Right. Um, I, I, the, the, so every teacher sort of at a different spot in terms of their skill sets and also their attitudinal beliefs about this stuff. So I don't know what your journey is going to look like other than your journey is going to be hard. It is going to be fraught with missteps. And, uh, and I think that that's awesome because hard work that we have no choice but to look at, learn from, and adapt to is the best learning environment you can create. And if you're super smart, you are paying attention to all of those challenges and benefits that you are receiving from those challenges and using that as insight and wisdom to develop challenges for your students so they have the opportunity to reflect and grow from challenges just as you are reflecting and growing from the challenges that you are facing. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to give yourself permission to fail and learn from that, but also if you're an administrator or a supervisor of any kind, mm -hmm. you had better set that tone that mm -hmm. the people that work for you or report to you need to be given the opportunity to yeah. fail and you have to support them on this. So here's, here's one of the funny things that happened in the spring is I think some, some of the teachers that had the hardest time, people that I talked to that had the hardest time with the spring were not teachers who had poor technology skills, um, you know, and, and, and had to adjust because they were sort of given, here's your minimum expectation. I just need you to figure out how to do this. I just need you to do this. And they were given clear direction. The teachers who already knew how to design online learning, but were given no expectation as to how much or how or what or anything like that, those teachers killed themselves. They killed themselves, giving everything that they could with no clear expectations. And that was so hard. They were exhausted. I mean, just exhausted. More so even than those who were just learning. And they were tired too, don't get me wrong. So like, like as an administrator, you have a duty to identify expectations and provide the conditions to support teachers for those expectations. You also should be looking at goals that go beyond those expectations, but also helping teachers not kill themselves in the attainment of goals and, and you need to provide them steps and support all the way through that gap between expectations and goals. And if you're not, you're not doing your job. So you certainly can't hold your account, teachers accountable for not fulfilling their job. But what an awesome opportunity to use that as a learning experience to teach that it's okay to make mistakes, that it's okay to fumble through this in the beginning and to try to understand this and to see what's working, what's not working, yep. and make changes and make adaptations and realize that everything in life is iterative. So why isn't right. our teaching and our education processes iterative as well? Amen. And absolutely. And I love that phrase, grace and space. Um, I, I would put some benchmarks on that, right? Because grace and space without expectations or a vision is chaos. Sure. And, and, and too many teachers, um, you know, I mean, there were schools, lots of schools, lots of large districts who basically said, 
um, where students can't go backwards in this uh, in that springtime where they basically said, you know, you don't have to do your assignments and if you do your assignments, they won't be, you can't get bad grades. Like, what? Like, like where is the expectation and motivation for learning, right? So, so grace and space, absolutely. That, that, that is all of that. And, and, and administrators need to give themselves grace and space too. But administrators also have to be working to create those bookends of expectations and vision and then creating grace, space, and support um, for um, the support for the teachers to have that grace and space within those bookends. I know that we are over time here even, but it's just, we got so excited. Clearly there's so much passion on, the, on this. So it's, it's great that, and, and I'm, I'm loving it. And obviously we could keep going. How can, our, how can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they reach out to educational collaborators and how can they keep in touch and keep the conversation going? Yeah, thanks. And, and thanks for having me too. Cause I, I just enjoyed this. Uh, hence, hence why it went too long. And I told you at the beginning before we started that uh, I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> and, and when you say uh, Montgomery, are you talking about Montgomery County in, in Maryland? In Maryland, yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I was a, uh, I was a Montgomery, an MCPS parent, right? And Excellent. In fact, my, my son this morning was wearing his Rockville High School uh, ball cap. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. Um, Very nice. So it's funny that you said that. So uh, yeah, big, a big fan of that, of that district, actually. Um, they, were, they were great. As a parent, I was really impressed with them. So um, educational collaborators, you can reach us on our website, which is uh, just www.educollaborators.com. Collaborators has got an S and it's just educollaborators.com. And if they want to contact me, if there's, there's buttons all over that site that have, uh, whether there's a contact us form, but there's buttons to also get access to my calendar. And so if anyone wants to just reach out and schedule some time, you can pop right on my calendar and we'll just chat. Like, you know, um, feel free to reach out. Love to, love to continue this conversation. And, and, and if there's anything that we can do to help your school or district um, with this time, please give us a call. We, we really want to get you going. We've got everything from like $20 eBooks to like year long mentoring programs. So like we'll meet you where you are. That's kind of who we are and what we do. Josh and I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Amplifying Optimism in Education. Please join us next week for another new episode and conversation with an innovative educator from around the world.